Hello and welcome to the podcast of Ed Can Help with me, Edward Sim. Today I have the great pleasure of talking to Danny Donaghy. Danny's blend of Eastern spirituality, meditation and bodywork proved to be enormously popular at Everton, where he was the head of medical. Since then, he's developed his unique approach to coach high-performance clients in many different elite arenas. I'm interested to know how he got footballers to love mindfulness in the first place and what he thinks are the secrets of his success. Danny, thank you very, very much for, for joining me. I always seem to have to end up confessing that I'm not a massive sports clever clogs in any way, shape or form, uh, but I know that you, head of medical at Everton, which sounds a wonderful place to have been, and I think that since then you've now gone on to develop your own practice with other elite sportsmen of all shapes and sizes, and you're also bringing your talent to bear on other people, executives, business coaching. Is that true or did I dream it? I didn't dream yeah, it. Yeah, it's true, yeah. It's so true. I, I did a master's at the Tavistock, which I finished oh, you? about um, two years ago. Mm. That was in consulting and leadership. And that uh, changed changed me in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, but in the way I see the world and yeah, want to work with people. So I've gone into organisations with that. Oh, Tavistock's great. Also, actually, I, I did do a little bit of homework. I mean, completely idle. <laughs> and I saw that you were a metanoia, I think. Yeah. So the Tavistock and Metanoia are very hardcore, serious psychotherapy uh, institutions, really. Yeah. But from listening to what you said before and reading around, it it didn't strike me that that you have actually become a hardcore Jungian analyst or whatever else is that they produce at the Tavistock. So, what was the training like at Metanoia? Did you enjoy it? I did, yeah. Um, mm. But that was quite a few years ago now. And I'd say that the the metanoia training, it was very experiential. Mm. And it was it was about organizational change. And they brought in some incredible uh, tutors for the weekends, mm. one of whom was called Eliat Aram. Mm. And she is the CEO of the Tavistock Institute. And she had a huge impact on me on that weekend. And it made me want to go to the Tavistock even though I knew nothing about it. And I went there and from the first day I was there, I was kind of confused and I was on a scale of between love and hate um, from one moment to the next. Mm. So it was quite a, an interesting experience. What did you love about it? What did you hate about it? <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether it was particularly about the place, but it brought up those feelings in me. Mm-hmm. And um, for people who don't know about it, it's it's quite it's quite big on boundaries and quite mm. strict on things like that. So, for example, you've been in an experiential group, and the first one you don't know what it is, you don't know what it's about. The tutor walks in, doesn't say a word, and then after ninety minutes, you could be in the, the deepest you know debate or whatever, and in, and you'll just get up and walk out without a word. Things like that are very challenging because it's completely um not typical it's disconcerting that i mean that style of 
psychotherapy where the therapist is um, fully expectant to, to sit there in complete silence if necessary. <laughs> I mean, I have to confess that um, I can't wait to start talking, which obviously is not going to qualify me as any kind of um, person-centered counselor or psychodynamic counselor. But I also, when I was listening to you and Lisa chat, you were saying that one of the key uh, skills or what what is what the secret of success is is for the therapist to get out of the way, which I've heard said before. And what I was wondering was, how do you get out of the way? Hmm. Very good question. And I feel like I've I've been working on that from a young age. Actually, my dad was um, a meditator and he was a footballer when I was young. And from he would give me books like Siddhartha, Herman Hesse, um, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And it got me into thinking about how I could get out of the way, even though I didn't know it was that at the time. And basically, um, from a very, as, as long as I could remember, I was interested in enlightenment and the Buddha and being an enlightened being. And my, my sense is um, you get out of the way by being fully present. Right. So it's a paradox, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a paradox and it's quite interesting as well because I've got an example. My wife, she thinks that I'm a very confident person um, and she admires that about me. And I don't particularly relate to that at all. I don't feel like I'm a confident person at all. Mm-hmm. But what I do feel like I'm good at is the idea that I'm not a confident person, letting go of that and leaving that out of the way and being present. And that gives this illusion of confidence, but it's not, it's not because confidence is something in, in the mind. Yes. And, but you, you never, one never really wants to meet the person who says, I've got bags of self-confidence. <laughs> you know, there are a range of Anglo-Saxon terms to describe um, those kinds of people. So maybe starting from, I don't have heaps of confidence that immediately sets you know people at ease with an energy it's not about i'm i'm here to fix you because i've got all the answers by the sounds of it with you yeah yeah i would definitely agree with that and quite often when i work with clients um more recently actually like kind of high performing executives they've they've said to me oh i'd like you to kind of hold me to task and, and tell me what to do and I'm like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And and it amazes me really that such successful people desire that, you know. Mm. And and I, I like to dig into what, where does that desire come from, and and how has that desire originated when you've been so successful in your life? Mm. But I think there's something in what we're saying about getting yourself out of the way. And maybe they're not so good at that. And maybe that's what they need to learn. I I mean, I suppose um, people who are very successful in business are probably type A personalities. We won't even talk about people who veer off into the kind of um, psychopathology bracket. But people who are used to filling a room and being paid attention to and knowing what they know and telling people what they think. It must be quite difficult for this 
collection of people to take a step back and not be faced with a heavy-handed structure. Mm. Yeah, and something in what you said, it reminded me of the fact that I'm really getting more and more curious these days about especially athletes, elite athletes, and their relationship with their parents, but especially their father. Mm. And it's so common that that relationship is dysfunctional. And it not only is it dysfunctional, but it the, the father kind of challenges them so much and it, it drives them it drives them to you know work hard and be successful but then it seems like it's quite a fragile feeling because they mm. get there and obviously they need to do the work on whatever the, the issue with the father was and quite often they haven't and it's fragile and it's short-lived and they can't live with the pressure of being a footballer or an athlete mm. and I've spoken to quite a few of them about this and, you know, I've asked them whether they felt like without that relationship, they would have been footballers and most of them think not. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So a a demanding dad, um, you know, who tells you to jump higher or run faster is the key to success. Yeah. (laughs) Seems that way. But I, my, my own father, as I said, was a footballer and yeah. he, he didn't push me at all. Um, but I, I was desperate to be a footballer and I had that real internal drive. And my dad actually thinks that he should have pushed me more. Mm. And I'm saying, no, no, uh, you know, it's the greatest gift you can give me not to do that. Mm. Um, because if it comes from internal, then it's true, isn't it? And and it's without that pressure and it's not forced and it's more substantial. So did you always think that you would end up in a kind of uh, healing, therapy, nurturing, growing role? Or is no. it a complete shock to you and everybody else around you? <laughs> Absolute shock, yes. I never, ever... Basically, when I was I was late to develop uh, physically. So I was around... Um, I didn't grow fully till I was about 20, 21. Mm -hmm. So 17 to 19, people thought I wouldn't be a footballer. I wasn't good enough. Um, But I kept trying. And then I went to university. And the only thing that you could do at university that was kind of connected to football at those times was physiotherapy. So I did that. And to get in, I had to I had to tell them that I was really looking forward to working with old people and, you know, (laughs) to get in because they didn't want sports people. Right. So I got in and I, I did the degree and I never really felt any affinity to it at all, other than the moments that I had with really sick people actually, you mm. know, in cancer and, and elderly. Mm. And it had a huge impact on me. Uh, and then I became a footballer. And after that, I didn't know what to do. So I just thought I'd use my degree and, and be a physio. Mm. So... So then you became a physio, but you obviously quite quickly wanted to bolt on other things to that sort of more esoteric, spiritually even therapy kinds of things. How quickly did you come to realise that it wasn't just going to be about manipulating muscles for you? Um, to be honest, I don't think it was ever about that. Mm. I I was always far more interested in spirituality, the psyche, the mind. 
And it didn't take long until I read a book by uh, Professor John Sarno. Um, I think it's called Mind Over Back Pain. Mm. And he was an incredible guy. He's, he, uh, the book is about basically repressed emotions and that is the cause of most pain. Uh, so I read it and, you know, coming out of physio school, they teach you about the physical body and, and all this. And I read the book and I thought it's absolute nonsense. Can't be true. Like yeah. it's ridiculous. And then, you know, you start working with people and you do what they tell you to do in the physio school and you realize that it doesn't work mm. and it's purely on a physical level. Um, so I started kind of delving into how emotions and the psyche might impact people and started working with them in that way and it had a huge, huge effect. So, yeah, so then I realized I needed to study the mind in different ways so I could help people in a deeper way, really. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think with chronic pain and, and that whole raft of sort of psychophysiological problems, everybody's waking up to the fact that you're not just bone and skin and muscle tissue. <laughs> but it sounds like um, you had that idea uh, before most. Yeah, and I think obviously my dad um, helped with that a lot. Uh, because he he was like football is a very physical thing obviously you have to get the body in good shape and you get injured and that has a big impact on you um but there's a lot more to it and the best the very best athletes are the ones who are mentally with it and mm. the ones who can get themselves out of the way mm. it makes me think about wayne rooney when he first came to everton he was 15 and he came into training with men, you know, like 30 year old men. And it's not an easy environment to come into. It's quite hostile because they don't want their places taken. Right. And he was just fearless, effortless, loved it and was the best player from the first moment. And nothing, nothing made him question himself or mm. it was an incredible mentality to see. Yes, there aren't very many people around like that no <laughs> <laughs> for one reason or another so you took yourself off to india to Sadhguru's ashram yeah i went to india actually many times before oh, i went yeah. to see Sadhguru. Mm. um the first time i went it was to see a guy called uh, patabi joyce and he was the founder of something called Ashtanga Yoga, which is quite famous over here now. And that is a yoga that is, it connects asana, which is postures with breath and movement. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved it straight away because I'd been an athlete. It was a very physical practice, but it just gave me such a deep sense of relaxation and also focus. Um, so I went to India um, we went with my two boys at the time. They were quite young. I think they're about one and three. Mm. Um, and we went there several times for probably about a year in total. And yeah, I mean, that practice, I think it's quite basic, um, but it has big impacts mm. on, on the whole the whole system. Um, and then it was quite a few years later, I found out about Sadhguru. And I actually met him in Nottingham, first of all. And he, um, I've never seen that, met anyone like him in my whole life. And I have um, traveled the world mm -hmm. in, in seeking for people who are enlightened. Yeah. 
Um, so I basically contacted his people and asked whether he would come into Everton and speak to the players. And he's a big football fan, which is crazy. Very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we got to meet. Mm. Well, that was a that was must have been a first in uh, football circles, wasn't it? <laughs> it was definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, when you said that, it, I just got the image in my mind. Basically, um, he so he, he did a, a public talk in Manchester the night before, and it was a long talk. It was about two hours, maybe two and a half hours long, and it was quite deep and very sort of philosophical. And he's not really like that usually. So I knew that he was coming to the training ground the next day. And I'm thinking if he's anything like that with the players, I am absolutely dead because mm. everyone knows it's on me. He's coming in because of me. Yeah. The manager allowed it, but he's like, yeah, it's fine. But nothing to do with me. It's with you. So the next morning I'm, I'm thinking, how can I get out of this? You know, what can I do to get out of it? I knew I was trapped. So he came. Um, and he was just coming to see the training ground and meet the players. And he came in his, his robes like he's normally dressed mm -hmm. in. And he had these sandals on, Indian sandals. And he goes out onto the training pitch and he's kicking balls around with all these players. And <laughs> I'm just there thinking, oh, my God. But he came and spoke to the players on that evening. And I think the players were impacted in quite a big way, actually, because some of them still do his practices. Mm. They won against Liverpool the next day, which was a rare occurrence, very rare occurrence. Well, yes. the power of the mystic obviously <laughs> paid off. I mean, for you yourself, Danny, with all these different practices, and I mean, I'm not remotely particularly knowledgeable about yoga or yogic practice particularly, but I know there's a lot of different ones. So how do you choose? Because you know, time is limited. You only have so many hours <laughs> in the day. I mean, how do you? How have you come to settle on whatever it is that you do for yourself? Yeah. So I think I was drawn to the Ashtanga Yoga, as I said, because it it suited me as an athlete, and I wanted more than just the athletic things. So, so it gave me both. And I did that for probably 20 years. I did that two hours every day for 20 years. And and now I don't do any physical practice at all. I I now just basically meditate twice a day. Really? Yeah. You don't do any yoga? Um, little, little, but much less dynamic than I used to do. Because I think the purpose of the physical practice is to get you into a place where you can meditate, basically. So you're supposed to do the asana, then you do pranayama, which is the breathing. And then that prepares you energetically to meditate. And I think 20 years is enough, isn't it? Come I on. have to say, <laughs> 20 minutes would be enough, <laughs> probably, for some people. I see. And, and sorry, I, I, I'm asking all these kind of personal questions, but I'm interested to know. So do you get up bright and early and you do it when it's quiet and peaceful and the house isn't full of racketing others what, yeah what, how do you yeah what, I do what, yeah what, how does your day start yeah so I'm not as strict as I used to be I used to be like very regimented because I had to get the two hours yoga in before my day so I used to go up at five every day to do that and then meditate and then meditate in the evening as well for half an hour now I just get up maybe five thirty six and meditate mm -hmm. for half an hour and meditate in the evening as well 
but I, um, it reminds me, I, I did this practice. It's called uh, Nadi Shodhana, which is, it's alternate nostril breathing, but it's a Kriya and you have to do it four times a day. So you do it at sunrise, 12 o'clock, sunset, 12 o'clock. And I'm, I go to bed quite early. So I go to, I go to sleep at like 10 o'clock. I'd set mm. my alarm for midnight. I'd get up, I'd do this 50 minute practice, go back to sleep, get up at sunrise. And I did that for three years. Hmm. So I think I, I'm quite dedicated. Um, yes. Well, no one could accuse you of, <laughs> of simply talking and not walking, could they? Exactly, yeah. And the family, have they captured your enthusiasm and everybody's lined up doing their meditation or do they think, oh, good God, it's just dad being bonkers. Yeah, that one. Mm. <laughs> I think that's very healthy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like I would never, you know, it's it's my it's my path. Mm. And I'm sure at some point in their lives they will. Like my daughter's 14 and I'm sure she'll, because we, we've taken them uh, to the ashram, Sadhguru's ashram, um, they've met him a few times. I think it'll have an impact on them. And my wife, uh, she's she meditated for a short time when quite early in the relationship. I think she was trying to impress me, mm-hmm. um, but she's given up. She's oh, not bothered anymore. It's nice of her to make the effort, I suppose. <laughs> but she had. Um, we were at the ashram for the first time to see Sadhguru. And the first evening he spoke for again, like two hours. I asked him one question and the answer took 90 minutes. So the kids were quite young. Uh, my daughter was there at that point, but she was probably about one. And so the second night he was talking, I said to Ruth, why don't you go and I'll just stay here, look after the kids. And she was like, reluctantly, she said, okay, I'll go, I'll go. And she came back and said, oh, I think you'll be pleased. I was like, oh, what, what? And she said, I had a bit of a reaction. And she said when Sadhguru came out, um, she just started bursting into tears and was crying for most of his talk. And she wasn't really sure what had happened or why. Mm. And the next day we met him and the same thing happened. Hmm. These, these, these powerful people, there aren't necessarily many, well, I don't know whether there are lots of them in the, in the world, we just haven't met them, but, but certain people with with a particular presence have astonishing effects. It's incredible really, isn't it? When you think about it, because Sadhguru, his father was a doctor, um, just in a normal, it's quite a small town called Mysore in India. Mm. He knew nothing about meditation or yoga. He did a little bit in his teens and, and now he's got millions of followers worldwide. Mm. You know, that someone can have that in them. It, it's, Crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing. Do you incorporate your skills and practice and affinity with that side of life? I mean, some people might think, well, it's a bit spiritual, it's a bit hippie, or it's a bit <laughs> nuts, you know. Uh, and you, we already told me that the, the sorts of clients you have are often probably type A personalities. They're not going to swallow any old nonsense quickly. So how do you manage to... Uh, slip that in in such a way that people really benefit where do you start where do I start Hmm. good question I think because I've you know in terms of the athletes because I've got a lifelong experience with athletes I know a lot about how it is to be an athlete so that helps me a lot Mm -hmm. 
And then I think I've got the kind of spectrum of education from the, the Tavistock to this weird spiritual stuff. Yeah. And I think I kind of combine them both and mm. that makes it more sort of palatable. And at the same time, although this weird spiritual stuff might be weird, I think people are more and more desperate for something and mm. they feel like there's something missing in their lives. So, yeah, they're desperate. Yeah, so, well, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you probably, I mean, do you ever have a moment where you go, all right, um, James or Joe or Bloggs, I'd like to tell you something this morning. And what I'm going to tell you about is this Ayurvedic practice or this sad guru who's meant a lot to me. I mean, do you, or do you, is it more subtle? Well, that isn't very subtle. Is it more subtle than that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. More yeah. subtle. Yeah. I would never, like, it's more about, um, as you said at the beginning, getting myself out of the way. Yeah. So if there's some way that they can practice, I think it's really important that you empower people, that they can help themselves. So if there's something that I could give them to, to do, then I would. But I'm more interested in practical ways that they can use things in their day-to-day -day life. Mm. And I feel like a big part of life and living is relationships. Yep. So how we can help people relate better to others. They probably, it's probably one of those unconscious things that obviously, as you as you know, you put two people in the room, they'll start mirroring, matching, and unconsciously connecting. So it, it maybe it's it's just you being calm and centered. As I assume you are, and the next thing you know, they have they've just realised, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Yeah, I can see that works for him. Yeah. So probably without any effort at all, you you pass on and knowledge or an energy or something that that immediately captivates people i would think yeah i think so and that that reminds me of the morning that Sadhguru came to the training ground because of my practices i very rarely feel anxious or anxiety and and that morning i was like i, I was feeling it and really? i was like i was sweating and i was i was like what's going on so it was like a real heightened feeling for me and then the second that I came into his presence, it completely went in, in that moment. Hmm. So there's definitely a transmission of energy and obviously he's got this powerful energy, but that was a huge lesson for me, you know, to experience going from there to there, hmm. just hmm. through presence. Hmm. These days, it's a very crowded marketplace with people and coaches and therapists. And as you know, you know, mindfulness has taken over the world. <laughs> you can't actually, I'd uh, say you can't breathe without tripping over mindfulness, <laughs> but mindfulness has also managed to, you know, tell people that breathing's good for you, like no one ever realised that before. <laughs> so how do you differentiate? I mean, obviously, we differentiate yourself in the sense that it's you, but, you know, does it ever cross your mind that, you know, everybody's at it with skills and coaching and everybody's got an angle. And I suppose with your background, you've, you know, you've got a flying start, but it sometimes probably just worries therapists and people of all sorts that everybody has to stand out these days. And how on earth do you do it? Yeah, I think it does cross my mind, but not so much, to be honest, mm. because I feel like I think the thing that gives me the confidence is the fact that I've, you know, since I was 18, mindfulness is quite a new term, mm -hmm. but since I was 18, I've been practicing every day, every day. And I've been to India 20 times. I've, 
I've done every course you can imagine. So I feel like I'm coming from a place where I've done quite a lot of work on myself. And I think that gives me confidence. Mm. That's a good point. So you could say that, again, it's the kind of helpfulness of the practice itself working through you so that you're not being neurotic about, oh, help. <laughs> Where, where's my next client coming from? Which is probably why um, your diary is absolutely rad. Yeah, I've spoken to my wife about this. I'm obviously very laid back and we've been discussing whether well, I was asking her whether she thinks that's just the way I am or is it because I've done all these practices for all these years? And obviously it's impossible to know, but something drew me to the practices Mm. and yeah. And like the practices have an impact. There's no doubt about it. I remember a a supervisor of mine many years ago who I, I didn't have an awful lot of things that we agreed on. And I never knew whether I really agreed with this with her or not. But it's an, it was an interesting point. She said in one supervision session, well, Edward, you have to realise that we get sent the clients we need mm. for ourselves. Mm. What, what do you think about that? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I think it's probably true, yeah. yeah. I think it is slightly true. Yeah. You know, I slightly wish it wasn't true. Yeah. But there are times when somebody comes into your life or comes into your diary and they have an amazingly powerful effect on you. Oh, yeah. Or whatever you happen to be in life. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, actually, that, you know, since I left Everton, which was around six months ago, I've been working with quite a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm. And they've honestly transformed the way I think and feel. And they've made me a lot more entrepreneurial. And I do feel like I've learned at least as much from them as they've learned from me, at least. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, that that suggests that it's a very democratic process, a, a sort of exchange of energies going on, yeah. which, which is a much nicer way to think of uh, coaching or therapy or whatever it is, not just, you know, boffin plus client, <laughs> which must have had its day sooner or later. <laughs> I don't know whether it has, but... You reminded me of when I first went to the Tavistock. As I said, I knew nothing about the Tavistock or any of the theories like Melanie Klein and Freud. And I, I felt um, like I was I was kind of in awe of the professors and in, in their knowledge and the, the depth of their knowledge. But I kind of... I, I got to a certain level throughout the course, which was, was amazing. And and then I feel, feel like I've got enough from that and I don't need to get their depth of knowledge mm. to have a big impact on people. Mm. Have you ever had a, a, a client with whom you just cannot get on and, you know, you're just hoping that they're going to pack it in before you have to? <laughs> um, no. To be honest, I've been really lucky and thinking about my current clients. Yeah, I'm, I'm mm. very grateful. Yeah, I've actually um, thinking about the type of client that you attract. I've got mainly male clients mm-hmm. and I've wondered about that and I've tried to kind of change it. And I've got a couple of females that I work with and I love working with females. But I guess that there's probably a, a need with the male clients, especially the athletes, because a lot of them, I feel like the, especially in football, 
the systems set up to kind of support them psychologically aren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite notoriously stigmatized mm-hmm. to admit to weakness. In, still. Yeah, still, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thing. It's really difficult because, you know, if a player admits to having psychological issues, then that could definitely impact whether he's picked to play and play and whether he's going to get a new contract and whether he's going to get a new club. Yeah. So it's really difficult for them to come out and be open about it. And I, I can understand why. Mm. Yes, with all the best will in the world, if you've just got a, a list of people and some have got mental health problems and some don't, yeah. not many managers would, would not no. notice that, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... It's comparable to if you've got physical injury history, yeah, and you haven't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sign that player. It's a really difficult thing to navigate, I think. Mm. Coaching in business sounds to me quite different from elite sports and top flight athletes, or are they just? Is it quite quite similar that one's in a boardroom and others a pitch? Yeah, I feel like it's very similar. Really? Yeah, very similar. I think the diff- the main difference is that footballers are, are part of a team, whereas the people I work with in the boardroom are quite often, well, they're both often quite lonely, but the, the leaders in an organisation are quite lonely because they're put on this leadership pedestal or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, but I, I still think there's a lot of similarities with footballers, even though they are in a team, more so now, um, it's becoming more and more individualized. You know, players are getting their own teams around them, mm-hmm. away from the club. And I feel like that they're missing the connectedness that they used to have with being in a team because it's becoming more and more individualized. And I think mm-hmm. it's probably, it's a number of reasons, but it's probably a psychological defense because the pressure's just more and more, you know, because of the TV and social media and all those kind of things. But I think it backfires because they lose that connectedness. Mm. So that it's the sort of cult of the celebrity individual, which is not remotely how. I mean, what little I know of English football, you know, when it when it used to be, well, let's just have three pints before a match, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and try to go to bed before midnight. <laughs> I suppose it's it's just another world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I can remember when I was a boy, I used to go and watch my dad. And I'd, I'd sit in the players' lounge before the game and the other team would come into the players' lounge and drink whiskey before the game. And mm. I just couldn't believe my eyes because my dad was quite <laughs> forward thinking and mm. he didn't do that. Uh, but even my dad, you know, after the game, they'd all go out as a team and drink together. And yeah. even though the drinking isn't good uh, for an athlete, it, it brought teamness and connectedness. Yes. yes, I mean, you can see why that was... It, it's a shame if that gets lost yeah. or or it is getting lost. And that yeah. sounds like a, a genuine loss, that, yeah. you know, a, a team sport that isn't really about a team anymore. Yeah, um, I think so. And also in those days, because they could go out and have fun and they're a lot more relaxed and less obsessive about it. Whereas now, you, you know, you get weighed every day, you get your mm. body fat measured, you get this measured how much are you eating you have to eat this amount you have to eat these things mm. you have to look a certain way for instagram yeah and it's it, it just creates more pressure in the mind and it's difficult it's really difficult to deal with 
and I've always known it to be a footballer is is very difficult because every day when you're training when you're at the training ground you're in direct fierce competition with the people around you mm. Mm. do you have a I'm sure you do your guidance for people relating to social media I mean, when with your clients of, of all sorts what what do you tell them about how to manage it or stay off it or avoid it like the plague what what's your line i think uh, it's very difficult to kind of give them any advice really because i think everyone knows the impact that it has but it's such a huge addiction in our society it's hard for me to say anything because i feel Mm. like like the players know you know after a game if if they put a foot wrong it's on social media but the thing is a lot of them say that they don't look at it but they still hear about it through their friends. Mm. Um, And I think that is true in some cases. So whatever they do, it's kind of like, it's the psychological garbage bin of our society, isn't it? And it it comes back and it comes through and it percolates. It's a really difficult thing to navigate. Mm. Yes, yes. Even being absolutely nobody, it's it's quite difficult to (laughs) find your way through, never mind being somebody. So do you see yourself developing your current role with a, a wide range of clients here in the UK or do you see yourself going abroad? Or if I bumped into you in three years' time and I said, oh, gracious, Danny, you know, um, well, we're probably down at the Greyhounds or something, <laughs> you know, fancy meeting you here. What, what would you like to be able to tell me about between here and then? I think it's difficult to know where I'm going to go in terms of location and space. But what I would like to tell you is that I continue to love working with people in a meaningful way. And I still feel like I'm having a big impact on people's lives mm. because that's that's what I love doing really. Whether that's on a, an individual basis or a whole group. I actually, I definitely want to work with more groups. Yeah. I'm training as a group analyst. Oh, I've you? finished my first year, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I do think that that's had a big impact on me as well. I used to be quite fearful of groups, big groups. And um, I've completely lost that somehow. Um, yeah. So I'm a huge fan of group work. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite scary, group work, I think. Yeah. Because you, know, you just don't know what's coming at you. <laughs> yeah, and I think like, it, it seems to be quite magical in a way because you don't know what's coming at you. And quite often you don't really know what, what you're getting out of it. It's not like a direct one-to-one experience where it's, it's clearer. Mm. But for me, it seems to have a big impact and it kind of works in a magical way like the Fawkes who started group analysis he talks about the matrix like the energetic matrix of Mm. the group and how one part will impact another and it's fascinating Mm. yes I I don't do group work I think coping with just one person at a time is is quite enough really (laughs) the the thing I like about groups is though that Fawkes said and like it's my impression and feeling about it so far is that the they call it the conductor in group analysis. They have uh, less to do with it than in a one-to-one relationship. It's more about the group. You know, the group does the work rather than the hmm. conductor. And that's what I like about it. Mm. Yes. That could be misinterpreted as a slack option. Yeah. Where... <laughs> but uh, I know it isn't. All right. So 
finally, if I may ask you, because I'm trying to remember to ask everybody this, some advice. What would be the helpful thing for me to take away? I suppose this is free advice, so that's a good thing. You know, <laughs> if you could just get one thing into my skull that you would hope would improve me or my day or the people around me and everybody who's listening to this, what would it be, Danny? I think, well, first of all, I would never offer you any advice. Oh, because right, okay. You, you know a lot already. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, oh, I wouldn't count on that. No. Um, but, uh, yes. Um, beyond that, I would come back to where you began this conversation, and it is to work on and find out ways of getting yourself out of the way. So getting the I, getting ego out of the way, and there's many ways you can do that but the more you can be present without the i i think in my experience the more peaceful and happy uh, i've become over Mm. the years Mm. so it sounds like which i think is a very sound principle if something has worked for me the chances are it might work for you yeah and i think um i mean it's been written about by you know many people the buddha Mm. It's very simple, and I think quite often it gets overlooked because of the simplicity. Yeah, I think so. There is a tendency for things to get overcomplicated, for for people to add on things, thinking they're adding value, but they're probably not. Yeah, mm. I agree. Well, Danny, thank you very much for talking to me this afternoon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.